Some call it climate change, others call it a crisis, and still others call it a hoax. Today's guest tells us to take seriously the impact climate change will have in all of our lives. He's Dr. Michael Oppenheimer, this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Joining me from his home in Rhode Island is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, journalists, scholars, and more to make sense of the big stories that shape public life in the United States today. This week, we're joined by Michael Oppenheimer. He's a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University, and one of the most effective science communicators that I've ever known. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jim. We've wanted to have you on the show since we started, and we're, we're thrilled that you can join us. We, we really can't think of anyone better to talk about climate change today. Yeah, you know, but maybe our audience doesn't. You've been involved in every major global climate initiative for the last 30 plus years. You've been a coordinating lead author of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You helped frame the amendments to the Clean Air Act that reduced acid rain in the 1990s. So uh, we're just, again, really grateful for joining us. Let's start with a really big question. Uh, what is the state of the climate today? Well, uh, the climate's in a bit of a mess because of the emissions of the greenhouse gases, primarily carbon dioxide from fossil fuel combustion, which have caused a warming of the earth already of about a degree Celsius, a little less than two degrees Fahrenheit since pre-industrial times, and a whole slew of changes in the climate, some of which we're seeing if we just look at our uh, computer screens almost every day and check the news. More wildfires, uh, a shift to stronger hurricanes, more intense heat waves, in some areas more drought, and a rising sea level, which is already causing problems along the coast. Not every bad climate of, of, uh, episode that we see, for instance, uh, the, uh, the uh, freeze in Texas is due to climate change. We're not sure about that one. On the other hand, all the other ones I just mentioned, like extreme heat, more powerful tropical, uh, more powerful hurricanes, rising sea level, those are in all likelihood due to the climate change that emissions of the greenhouse gases are bringing, are bringing about. There was a time when we called climate change global warming. Um, why the change in the lexicon? And is that a more, is it a more accurate way to describe what's happening? Well, the word or the term global warming goes back to the period when the one thing we were absolutely sure about is that a buildup of the greenhouse gases would warm the earth and that has in fact happened but in addition a lot of other things have happened that we weren't sure about some of which early science told us would probably happen but now have come to pass and the kind of oh disturbing or exciting depending on you know how much of a scientist you are in in your head uh is uh, that things that were speculated about have now come to pass. To see them come to pass as a scientist, I find that 
incredibly interesting. As a human being, I find it sort of scary because there won't be a good outcome to this unless we start uh, reducing the emissions of these gases as soon as possible. The reality is we should have started 20 years ago, but there is a big change in many aspects of the climate. Some of the things I already mentioned, other areas of climate are also uh, getting more and more difficult for us to deal with, and not just us, parts of the system that we're part of, parts of nature, like coral reefs, for instance, uh, are suffering due to the changes in the climate. And so it's very varied, uh, different than every place on earth, but not very much of it is good. Most of it is bad, bad for us, bad for nature. So if, if we do not reduce carbon emissions, what do the projections look like in, in all of these areas, sea level rise, storms and so forth, 10 and 20 and 30 years into the future? The most important point is that we are now already moving into a climate which is totally new. It's not a climate that human beings and the history of the modern human species goes back around 200, 250,000 years. It's not like any climate we've ever experienced. That's why we're seeing more and more phenomena like more and more periods of extreme heat or extreme precipitation as happened in Hurricane Harvey. Uh, that are just undocumented in the historical record. These are features which are unprecedented. And so we're in a climate that human beings haven't had to deal with. Now, we have resources that uh, earlier humans didn't have. We have a highly industrialized society in many places on earth, which at least believes it's well insulated from extremes of climate. Air conditioning is probably the best example, protecting a lot of people from extreme heat. Of course, a lot of humanity can't afford air conditioning. On the other hand, uh, the big freeze in Texas, which again, we have no idea what whether that had anything to do with the uh, climate change, shows you that human beings are not totally insulated as they build these complicated systems with high technology. There is a, a, a theory that as you build more and more technologically advanced systems, you kind of walk out on a tree limb and you're trying ever more to do a balancing act because actually you you've let the climate change and you become less sensitive to it in some ways, but in other ways, you're just out there waiting for something to happen that you hadn't expected and the limb breaks. And that's, there's a concern that that's the situation we put ourselves in. So we've used all this technology, both to protect ourselves, but also to increase emissions of greenhouse gases, but it's also sort of built us into a corner. We have to get ourselves out of that corner very quickly now. So can you, can you drill down on sea level rise? I, I know speaking personally, Superstorm Sandy, which I covered for the Providence Journal along with many other journalists around the country, really brought home uh, the danger, the risk there, and the reality of sea level rise. Can you elaborate on sea level rise? I think that is such a critical issue. So uh, Superstorm Sandy wasn't a particularly powerful hurricane, and it, it turned into a uh, tropical storm uh, when it hit the coast. But the thing about it was that it was gigantic. So it was it had this gigantic circulation around it. It was something like uh, 1,000 uh, kilometers, 700 miles across. And what it was, what the winds were doing was pushing the sea, the water at the sea surface toward the east coast of the United States. And 
that piling up of water is called storm surge. And that storm surge rides on top of whatever sea level was before the storm came along. And sea level along the Northeast coast uh, is about a foot higher than it was a century ago. So we had the flood due to the storm surge boosted by an extra foot due to sea level rise. And that significantly increased the damage caused by the storm. The trouble is that in the future, we're just gonna raise sea level more and more. By the end of this century, it could be as much as three feet higher and a little more along the East Coast uh, than it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So we're, we're building more and more risk into the system. And although these, a storm like Sandy doesn't come along very often, it's about a once in a 300 year event, as you raise the sea level, that means that the flood level associated with Sandy becomes a more and more common event. And so the, the current once in a hundred years flood level uh, in a place like Miami is gonna come along once a year. Let me repeat that. A previous once in a century flood level will appear once a year in a place like Miami by the year 20. 50. That's only 30 years from now. If you were going to think about protecting that city, you would start doing it now. And in fact, they have started doing it on a small scale, sort of taking the low-hanging fruit of how you protect the coastal area. But that same once-in-a-century event becoming a once-in-a-year event is going to happen at many other U.S. coastal locations, too, and by 2100 at most U.S. coastal locations. So we're quickly moving into an era where events and risks, which are very unusual, you know, once a century, are gonna become common garden variety every year. We gotta get our game, we gotta up our game now or else by the time it happens, we won't be ready for it. So Michael, explain to the audience that might not know, why are sea levels rising? Sea levels are rising because as water warms and the ocean is warming due to climate change, fluids expand, they take up more volume. So in the ocean, that means it lifts a little bit and it runs over more onto the coast. That's one thing. Mountain glaciers, like in the Alps, like in Alaska, like in the Andes, like in the Himalayas, they melt more, they melt faster. When the earth is warmer, that means more water is going into the ocean in the first place. And then at the poles, we have two big ice sheets, one in Greenland and one in Antarctica that cover whole continents essentially. And as and they have started to fritter away at their edges. So the edges of the big ice sheets are starting to deposit more and more water and break off with more and more icebergs going into the ocean. And that raises sea level rise too. Those processes are slow and gradual, but once they happen, they're effectively irreversible. So we are now uh, baking into the system an amount of sea level rise for the end of this century that we can't just you know, pull back if we decide to reduce emissions even tomorrow. We're stuck with it for a long time. You know, the, the, the two, um, that's terrifying. I, I, I don't wanna gloss over that. The, 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 the two, People. I don't want to scare you here, Jim. I'm trying to. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Too late. <laughs> the, no, it, it, it is terrifying. There's, there's no other way to, especially to hear it from such an eminent scientist as yourself. 
Well, well, but you know, you have to remember there there is actually some good news at the end of the story too, which I hope we'll get to. Well, well, I want to talk about the good news, but I also I want to I want to dig a little bit further about when we talk about responding. The, the two principal things that I pr- typically hear described is is a strategy of adaptation and a strategy of mitigation. So mm-hmm. you know, try to try to make the the peaks and valleys a little bit flatter would be mitigation. Adaptation says, well, it's going to be a hot world and a wet world and a dry world in some places, and we just have to adapt to it. When you think about that spectrum of options, how do you think we're doing right now? And can we actually manage uh, the change that we're, as you say, is already baked into the system? Well, mitigation in the, in the term of art in the climate business means cutting emissions, basically. And we're not doing very well on that. Countries have indicated they want to do it. That's what the Paris Agreement was about. But their plans to actually, of what, what they're actually going to do are only halfway measures. And they're not even implementing those plans fully. Adaptation meanings, means learning from experience, planning in advance, and implementing measures that will protect all of us from too much heat, too intense rainfall, too intense uh, hurricanes, and uh, in some places, extreme drought, and the other effects like sea level rise. And we're not doing very well on that either. It turns out that we haven't got a comprehensive national plan in the United States to implement adaptation. We have pieces here and there. If you you can uh, read in the daily news how bad the situation is along the coast where we don't have a, a set of incentives to get people to not settle in risky areas. Instead, the federal government has been selling flood insurance at below market rates and people are happy in some cases to buy it and stay near the coast because the government is effectively subsidizing them living in areas where they shouldn't be living. That same story of perverse incentives propagates itself through the whole system through which we should be responding by adapting. And basically, it, it originates in the fact that our political leaders don't get any credit for building stuff long in advance, taking a forward-looking view People just tend to look at it as it costs me more taxes. I'll let the next generation worry about it. But the next generation is our children. And the next generation is also us in some cases, because if you're a little younger than I am, you're still going to be alive when this problem gets really bad, unless we start cutting emissions now and, and developing an adaptation program, which gets us protected from the level of warming that is inevitable. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 19 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Michael Oppenheimer, a professor of geosciences and international affairs at Princeton University. He's a great science communicator and an expert on climate change. You can follow Michael on Twitter at 
Climate Op. That's C-L-I-M-A-T-E-O-P-P. So do you, do you see any optimism? Uh, obviously, the Biden presidency is still very early, but do you see any optimistic notes with Joe Biden having become president? Well, there's a lot of things that are happening sort of anyway, namely the price of renewable energy, carbon-free energy, solar cells, wind turbines has tumbled. And it's now competitive. It's better than competitive. It beats the hell out of coal, for instance, in a lot of places. It's cheaper even in some uses than natural gas, which was which is thought of as a cheap fuel. And so we're moving into a world, and that, by the way, this didn't happen accidentally. It happened largely because the federal government has invested, subsidized research and development on uh, things like solar cells for generations. And so a lot of that is coming to fruition now. So the, the material to cut emissions, to get off fossil fuels, to reduce carbon, and eventually have it, the, the climate change slow down. We have most of what we need and we certainly have everything we need to get started. And the price is becoming very acceptable and there's no excuse for not doing it. And the Biden administration seems to be getting together a plan that will provide the regulations and incentives which will get the market spinning and get people buying these technologies and replacing fossil fuels. So that means eventually driving cars that are electric where the electricity comes from uh, solar energy, for instance, instead of from gasoline. And gasoline is basically a carbon fuel. So there is a lot of positive news on both the technology front and on the political front. But do we have the focus as a society? Do we have the consciousness as a society to stay focused on the problem long enough so we can actually implement this stuff, continue the price tumbling of the good energy while making the bad energy much more expensive. Michael, I want to I want to take a step back for a second and, and talk about how we know what we know about climate. Uh, the, the folks who are skeptics, and that's the term I'll use about about climate change, uh, talk about uncertainty and variability. Uh, how do we know what we know about the climate, and how? confident can we be in those conclusions? Certain aspects of the climate have been monitored very well for, for the, the, the oldest uh, records uh, that are direct are temperatures from thermometers and they go back now about 150 years. And then more recently, we have much more reliable ways of measuring many features of the climate system. For instance, there were measurements of sea level that were just along the coast uh, through devices called tide gauges that go back also more than 100 years. But since 1990, we have very precise satellite measurements from laser beams bouncing off the ocean surface. Uh, we know how much is natural variability partly by uh, looking at the sources of those na of that natural variability. Some of it comes from the sun flickering occasionally, which it does. Some of it comes from uh, emissions of dust from volcanoes, which reflects sunlight and has a slight cooling effect. But in both those cases, we've been looking at both those sources of variability with satellites since about 1979. And we know how big the sun flicker has been. We know what its effect on climate should have been. And we know how big the reflection of sunlight from volcanic dust is. And we know how big its effect on climate would have been. And in both cases, the effect is too small by far to account 
for what we're seeing in terms of the warming that's already occurred. Plus, it's there's actually it adds together as a slight cooling effect, and instead we're getting a big warming effect. So we have these Earth observing systems all over the place. We have floats called Argo floats in the ocean, which tell us the rate at which the heat is penetrating from the surface deep into the ocean. We we've we've done a beautiful job on science, but we have to keep that investment up. If we fall short, then 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be blinded. We won't be seeing what the climate changes are, and we won't be able to respond effectively. And one thing that's good news on the adaptation front is that the death rate in tropical cyclones, that is hurricanes, globally and in the United States has decreased over this century, despite the increase in the intensity of, of uh, hurricanes we're seeing in the North Atlantic Basin recently. And that's probably due to all the investment we've made in improved weather forecasting and early warning systems, where we can see what's gonna happen, we can tell people to get out of the way. That's what science is worth, it saves lives. So despite that, and despite, or in addition to the, the potential resources the United States has, there are large parts of the planet that at least today are not equipped and will not be equipped to manage this. What, what do you have to say about that? I mean, it, it well, seems like a total looming humanitarian crisis. Well, it's it's sad but true to that the to the extent the problem is left running out of control as it has been until maybe very recently. Uh, the people that have the least ability to cope with it are, in general, people who are poor or people living on subsistence farming where get, their droughts are getting worse, where it's now too hot so the corn can't tassel, uh, or people who make a living, uh, subsistence living by fishing in places where the fish depend on coral reefs, but the coral reefs are dying. So that's happening a lot of places in the global south, the so-called developing world. And a lot of these people just don't have the wherewithal to deal with a problem that they haven't created. It's been foisted on them by development, industrial development that's largely occurred until recently in the global north. Now that's not so true anymore because the biggest emitter these days is actually China. And China isn't really a developing country anymore. It's uh, an upper middle income country. So it's getting close to the kind of status that wealthy countries like the United States have. And all those wealthy countries have to own up to not just the historical responsibility for putting the long-lived carbon dioxide into the air. Once it's there, it lives for centuries, but also their current emissions in the case of China. And they all have to come to the table as they did at Paris and make stronger and stronger agreements for getting rid of the the fossil fuel problem, basically. And one of the things they need to stop doing is subsidizing fossil fuels. That makes no sense in a year, in a in a world where you're trying to cut the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Do, do you do you uh, do you have confidence that the political powers that be, whether we're in the United States or or internationally, are gonna are gonna have the courage to do that? Uh, eventually, yes, because it's inevitable. I mean, one of the reasons there's a high consciousness about this now, I'm convinced, is that people are starting to see changes in the climate, which are not only very noticeable, but in many cases intolerable. And we can't afford year after year to have big cities like Houston flooded. We can't afford year after year for a city like Miami to have to put in 
you know, not be flooded once every hundred year by a storm, but every year is being flooded by the high tide, for instance, because that's riding on top of a higher sea level. We can't afford to have agriculture in parts of the country gradually be marginalized economically because it's getting too hot and dry. So these are real economic effects. They're things that are affecting people's lives. There are consequences that people know are affecting their lives, and that eventually is getting our politicians to act. And that's why the Democratic Party, for instance, made it a big uh, issue in the past election. And if, as long as that kind of focus continues, I'm convinced that our government and other governments will get to solving the problem. So, so what can the average citizen of the United States do? To, to help in this regard? And I guess maybe a, a two-part question, the macro level, which would be supporting political action or, or industries and companies that are doing the right thing. And then the micro level, you know, right down to your household and, and what things you buy and how you get rid of them and so forth. Well, you know, as you said it yourself, the most effective thing is to make it a political priority. Let your politician, your political leaders know what you want. And when an election comes, Put your support, whether it's, you know, putting your body on the uh, in the street, not only lying down, but walking around campaigning for somebody or whether it means campaign contributions, whatever, make it dependent on their program to fix this problem. And uh, at, at the smaller level, the, the micro level, you make decisions every day, which, you know, it may not seem like it'll add up to much, but the more you do it, the more other people will do it. The more you do it, the more you'll talk about it, and the more other people will do it. And what's it? It is things like when you buy an appliance, make sure it's the most energy efficient one that you can get. When you buy a motor vehicle, make sure it has the lowest emissions per mile as that you can get. If you live in, uh, you know, in the suburbs or whatever, plant trees. They do take some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Those little measures may not add up, but they are a an educational opportunity, not just for you, not just for your children, but for your neighbor and your neighbor's kids. When one person sees somebody doing it, it becomes normalized for the next person to do it too, whether it's putting solar photovoltaics on your roof or buying an electric car. Uh, those are the kind of measures. And if we all do both, if we all make ourselves part of the political system, make it a political priority while you know, walking the walk also personally, to the extent we can, nobody's perfect. And you don't shouldn't try to be too perfect because you know it's probably gonna drive you nuts eventually. You'll spin back the other way. Uh, you know, I, I'm not perfect either by any means, but we should all take those measures which are feasible for us, us to take. Michael, it's, it's eminently reasonable. I, I, we've got about uh, a minute left here, and I'm wondering, uh, we're at the end of this pandemic year, uh, we hope that it's the light that we see at the end of the tunnel, but is there a link between pandemics and climate change? Uh, there are some links. The pandemic sure cut our emissions. Unfortunately, we'll probably bounce back, but with the uh, promise of some sort of infrastructure program, if we make green infrastructure, infrastructure which is low emissions rather than inducing high emissions, infrastructure, for instance, which means improving mass transit and rail systems and systems which take electric, which make it easy to drive an electric car and, and to, you know, power the electric car rather than making everything friendly for gasoline powered automobiles, for instance, and building more and more roads to create more and more emissions. If we do things on the green side, it will make a difference as we recover. It'll make a difference for the long term. Uh, but 
uh, also, you know, <laughs> we've muddled through bad problems before as a society. COVID was the most recent one. When I was a kid, we were diving under desks to keep from being annihilated by the Russians, we thought. Uh, and we found ways to, if not, put the genie back in the bottle and put the cork back in because the threat of nuclear exchanges is still there, but at a much lower level. We are capable of making messes and then solving them. And we made a terrible climate mess. Let's solve it. I'm convinced that human beings are gonna eventually get to solving it. It's only a question of how much muddle we create before we get the solution in place. That, that's a great place for us to leave it. Michael Oppenheimer, thank you so much for helping us understand this story. That's all the time we have this week, but if you wanna know more, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. He's Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. Mm -hmm.